0: Where was I? It was Easter Spring, April the 20th, when I last preached in this pulpit. A lot of days, weeks, 16 different Sundays. This church sat responsibly and responsively and listened to different folk in our congregation and community bring to you the word of God. And in every case, I was told what a joy and blessing it was to hear their fresh perspective and their voices and to see their faces. And as I talked to each one, personally, not everyone yet, but as I try, they've all said the same thing, what a joy it is to preach to this congregation. For does a congregation a preacher make? and a congregation makes the preacher. Thank you for that time to listen to other voices and to support them in your own presence here. I am deeply grateful, as I said, for this time away. And now that I am back, you're probably wondering how I have changed. This may be why I have been asked a whole lot lately, what are you going to preach on your first Sunday back? And this is a legitimate question. However, I think it assumes too much. As if I have been to the mountaintop and now seen over the other side can come back and tell you the ultimate truth of life. We sometimes have the mistaken idea that when one of us goes away on a long journey, like Odysseus in the Odyssey, Homer's great epic, then they come back with a completely new worldview. In fact, that has not been the case for me. I have changed some, I assure you, although not much, really. I've gained a couple of pounds. I am more refreshed, energized, excited to be back in this wonderful job. But I am still Steve with the same strengths and weaknesses, the same habits as before, no great mountaintop revelations, no lightning bolt realizations. I do see things a bit differently, which was the point, given the perspective of time and space, so do you. And ironically, I think what I have seen more, most differently is that which is seen from a distance, not up close. For the sabbatical afforded me a larger perspective, a sort of 10,000-foot flyover, a viewpoint, a way to perceive differently. That's why when I saw that the lectionary reading for today was the Genesis text about Joseph's revelation of who he is to his brothers and the providence that is woven throughout that, I knew I had to preach that. It's about the perspective of God, from God's point of view. Now, before we get to the text, we have to understand the context. For all things are seen in perspective. The story goes that Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter, 10 by Leah and Leah's servant women and two by Rachel, Rachel coming to it in anguish and late Joseph was the first son of Rachel and Benjamin II, the last of the sons of Jacob. Joseph was loved by Jacob more than any other of the children, and Jacob gave Joseph a coat. We probably have seen uh, Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat from time to time. We may have some idea how this story goes. Joseph played that coat for all it was worth, parading it back in forth forth in front of his brothers and sister, na 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 boo boo every chance. He tattletaled on them any time he could get away with it, and he told them arrogantly that he'd had a dream that one day they would all end up bowing down before him. As you can imagine, this did not make the siblings happy, and so the first chance they got when they were out keeping the sheep Joseph came out to be with them. They threw him into a pit, and with the first caravan that passed, they sold him for not much money and watched him make his way to Egypt, bloodying his coat with sheep's blood to convince Father Jacob that he'd been killed by a wild animal. Joseph landed on his feet in Egypt. He became Potiphar's first right-hand person. He was, Potiphar was the chief... Uh, Officer in Pharaoh's army. And that went great for a while until Potiphar's wife decided that she would make a play on Joseph since he was tall and handsome. And Joseph, denying her aggression, caused her to then blame him for being aggressive toward her, which led him to jail where he sat for several years. In jail, he interpreted dreams. Joseph was a dreamer. While there, word got out. The dreams that he interpreted came true. Later, Joseph still in jail, Pharaoh has a dream. It's a nightmare, really, about five, uh, seven cows that are large and big and full of plenty, and seven cows that are famished. Uh, a- a- and wasting away, and he knew uh, no one who could interpret the dream, and so uh, the baker who was in the jail with, with Joseph told Pharaoh, you need to get Joseph. He's a dreamer. He'll come interpret that, and so he calls Joseph, and Joseph says, yes, tell me the dream, and he does, and the dream is, well, the seven cows of plenty uh, are symbolic of the seven years of plenty for Egypt. We will have wonderful plenty and the seven cows of famine are seven years of famine that will follow. And so you need to build granaries and sheds and buildings to put the grain in from the seven good years so that it will uh, be for us in the seven famine years. Pharaoh liked this so much that he made Joseph the head guy in charge of the whole deal. Seven years of plenty came and went, two years of famine And everyone is starving, even Joseph's brothers. And so Jacob says to them, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go now and see if you can bring some back. And so they went. All but Benjamin. For Benjamin was the last son of mother Rachel, and Jacob did not want to lose him. The brothers found their way to Joseph's court. Not knowing it was Joseph, they came and bowed down before him, as Joseph had dreamt. They told Joseph of their plight, and Joseph decided to play them like cat and mouse. He filled their bags with grain, enough for a little while, and sent them on their way and replenished their stock of of money for which they had paid for the grain as a joke, After a year or so, they ran out of grain again and found their way back. This time, Joseph had told them, do not come back to me unless you bring Benjamin. Now, they still don't know Joseph is Joseph. And they don't want to bring Benjamin because Jacob was so attached to him as he thought again that was Rachel's last son. But finally Jacob relented and gave him up, and they took Benjamin to the court of Joseph again, and they came down and bowed down in front of him, and Joseph, still not declaring who he was, continued to pull their string. He wept in private, however. He filled them with grain, and this time he put a silver chalice in Benjamin's backpack, his, his package So that when he sent his steward to run them down, that Benjamin would then be accused of stealing from Joseph. Which brought them all back. Again, bowing down before Joseph. Benjamin now accused. Joseph says, I will keep Benjamin here and you must now go away. Which was the last thing that Jacob could have lived with. Judah second son of Jacob, at that point decided to man up and stood before Joseph saying, we had no idea that this was true. This is Jacob's wonderfully loved son. You will break his heart if you do this. Please take me and let me go into prison instead of my brother Benjamin. And at that point, you see, the denouement, the revelation that heightened tension of this whole story has finally come to the point where something must be revealed and so the text does just that from Genesis 45 1 through 15 then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him and he cried out send everyone away from me so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers, however, could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come, come, come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, and to keep you alive for you and the many survivors." It was not you, Joseph says, who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the lord of his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. So hurry up now and tell my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of Egypt. Now you come down to me and do not delay And you shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now the eyes, your eyes, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you, And you must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and that all that you have seen is true. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he then fell on his brother Benjamin and wept. And he kissed his brothers and wept with them. And after that, his brothers talked to him. And that, as Paul Harvey once said, is the rest of the story. It all comes together in the end. From the brothers' perspective, when they found out that he was Joseph, they were too terrified to speak. But from Joseph's perspective, which is in this story at least through the eyes of God, it was all part of God's cosmic providence which led to this forgiving and reconciling moment with his brothers. Do not be distressed he said or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life He would reiterate in the 50th chapter the same thought after the brothers got paranoid when Jacob their father died thinking that now Joseph will take his revenge and Joseph says to them do not be afraid am i in the place of god even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. You see, this is the divine perspective in this story that the Bible reveals. The Bible, this storybook of all of our ancient fathers and mothers and their lives and faith, the storybook of each of us, because we are them. But finally you see it as the storybook of God. The story of God. This is the genius of the biblical story. It witnesses to and gives perspective about this true life that is much greater than our own understanding of it. A different worldview and our place in it through the larger lens of God. This is not easy to see sometimes when we're in the middle of things, overwhelmed by the crisis Or the tragedy or the crazy business of life. It's not easy to see. There's a Buddhist way that we've been told to live life being in the moment. Books have been written, many of them, about how do we live in the moment. Claim the moment. Be present in the moment. Put down your phones. Be in the moment. Be in the moment. This is a discipline we should all live by. Every day, claim the gifts of each god-given moment as long as we don't get stuck there what if your moment is only darkness and despair what if in a moment you make a terrible mistake what if a moment comes with the news of great loss what then the story Pulls us out of those moments, out of our anxious, shameful selves, and out of all those others we obsess over, those slights and hurts and mess-ups. Pulls us out of those moments, out of the particular event in our life, and helps us see something from a larger perspective, that of God. In the end... We can declare all things work together for good. In the end, we have faith. Now, I am aware that this is an extraordinary claim to make, and not everyone can buy into it. Some of us will say that life is simply a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That life has no meaning, no rhyme or reason. It's just about the forces of life, the accidents and chaos that makes its way on our own lives. And our job is simply to endure and evolve. Things happen, get over it. Or we can go to the other extreme and say that All things are pre-planned and pre-programmed that God pulls every lever and pushes every button and determines every single thing that will happen from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed. Even our dreams, this is about God making it happen. But this, I think, is as much an illusion as is the first. And this kind of fatalism gives me the shivers God causes everything to happen, even tragic, unjust suffering. God? Instead, maybe, there is a third option. And I think that's what's revealed in this story of Joseph. That God is not the primal cause of all things, but instead instead, this cosmic seamstress that takes all of the battered threads of our lives and weaves those threads into a marvelous tapestry of meaning and purpose and providence. When and how is beyond us. We might not even come to know on this side of things, but it is for us in faith and hope to claim that God will do this. In the meantime, we live in mystery. There's another Buddhist story, you probably have heard it before, about a man who has a horse who runs away, and the townspeople come and say, oh, that's too bad, and the man says, well, maybe. The next day the horse shows up, leading five other wild horses with him, and the town comes to say, oh, that's good, and the man says, well, maybe. The next day, the man's son gets up to try to tame one of the wild horses, and he breaks his leg. And the town comes to say, oh, that's bad. And they say, and the man says, well, maybe. The next day, the forces of the king show up to draft those for the war that was upcoming. And, and seeing that the man's son had a broken leg, they didn't draft him. And the town shows up and says, oh, that's good. And the man says, well, maybe. And so it goes Maybe is about the best we get, folks. But in hope and faith, in living our lives according to the stories of these texts, we have been given assurance that in the end, our maybe is God's yes. I still have a quote that I came to when my daughter, Megan, applied to college. It came from Davidson College, and I've always had a secret admiration for Davidson College, and I can see all you Davidson College folk here with a big old smile on your face. But this is the kind of stuff a good school does. On the front of their application was a quote from Edora Welty, and it reads, The events in our lives happen in a sequence In time. But in their significance, they find their own order in the continuous thread of revelation. Did you get that? The events in our lives happen in a sequence in time, but in their significance, they find their own order in the continuous thread of revelation. The sabbatical gave me an opportunity to step back a little from the day-to-day moments and to look at things from a larger view, a perspective, a longer arch of history. This is a gift for me, but we don't need three-plus months to get it. Three and a half minutes will do. Just in those moments when you feel overwhelmed and hopeless, stop, breathe, pause, and remember the story of Joseph. Amen.